full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. Part of the mindset of Berkshire Hathaway, part of the mindset of Markell that makes us successful is we focus more on building wealth and building the value of the business as opposed to just focusing on the P&L. You know, a lot of companies would rather earn a 5% coupon every year than earn a 10% total return by investing in equities. The RVA family man with his family's name on the business. A rather massive global business. Here with Steve Markell. Stay with us. Last call, Sunday, November 10th. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Nada Surf, one of my favorite bands at the National in downtown Richmond. I interview the guys, then they play a full concert, the first in a most exciting series for us and the city of Richmond. Tickets at vpm.org slash events, but cheapest in person at the National's box office. Sunday, November 10th, full disclosure features Nada Surf. Join us. Joining me in studio in downtown Richmond is Steve Markell, vice chairman and director of Markell Corporation, the specialty insurer and value investing shop. It's much bigger than a shop, much bigger than a department store. It's actually massive right now. Steve started as an assistant treasurer at this company with his name on it. Uh, His grandpa founded it in 1930. How are you, sir? Doing great, Robin. Good to be here. That's great. So Sam Markell founded it in 1930? That's correct. And that was your grandpa? Yeah. What were the beginnings? What did it start off as? So he started off as a small insurance agent in Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, Uh Shortly thereafter, moved up to Richmond. Uh, He got involved in politics in Norfolk. In addition to being an insurance agent, he was on the city council in Norfolk. And shortly after World War I, sailors and military folks coming back to Norfolk were buying the first automobiles that were rolling off of the assembly lines. And to help pay for them, they ran taxi businesses in those days, which were called jitneys. Mm. They charged a nickel a ride. And Sam Markell convinced the Norfolk City Council to pass one of the country's first compulsory insurance laws to require these taxi operators, the jitney operators, to have insurance. And subsequently, his agency got involved in providing insurance for um, the jitney operators and in Norfolk, Virginia. As an insurer, as an underwriter, ultimately, aren't you an arbitrageur? You see a a chance to come in and kind of equilibrate a risk or be a market maker between it. Why was he so well positioned to serve that risk and to profit from it and help people who needed something? I mean, the company's reputation was that it pays its claims, it's really good, it's good for the money at a time of the Depression. Yeah. In those days, the big deal for him and what was happening and sort of the fundamentals of Markel was getting involved in specialty insurances and products that nobody else wanted to deal with and sort of being very innovative and creating a new need or responding to a new need in the community. And so in those days, automobile insurance just was not in anybody's landscape. Mm. Um, And so he really did uh, respond to a a new problem and a new need as cars were coming on the uh, on the scene. Is it a very basic business where you're saying, I can price the premiums at this and I want to have some excess over to kind of grow the company in the book of business? And then even back then, was he thinking about, this is in the throes of the Great Depression, I imagine, reinvesting the excess premiums? Well, it was as much in those days just about providing coverage and responding to needs. I think as the industry's evolved and as Markel as a company has evolved, those issues have certainly become more paramount. But in those days, he was just an agent. Uh, or a broker. And so he had to struggle and run around the country to find an insurance company willing to meet the need. And then ultimately, he created a company to respond to the need. 
So this says Sam Markell's four sons, Lewis, Irvin, Stanley, and Milton, joined the growing business. This is on the website in the 1930s. And Markell Service is created. Mr. Markell is actively involved in efforts to develop safety and other standards aimed at legitimizing the growing bus and trucking industries. He helps draft the National Motor Carrier Act of the 1930s. You go to the 1940s, uh, Markell Service earns a national following and develops a reputation for industry-leading claims adjusting and safety engineering. A sister company covering fleets of trucks and buses becomes the largest insurer of these risks in the U.S. I'm going to fast forward you, sir, to 1986. Was Sam Markell alive then? No, no. He passed away in the early 50s. This is when Markell had the IPO initially listed on the NASDAQ exchange. The company had a market capitalization then of $15 million. And dear listener, you fast forward to 2019. I'm checking. It was last clocked Markell's value at $16 billion. This is no longer just a niche insured. It has 17,400 employees. It's in how many countries? Golly, probably 20. I'm not sure. And I can't resist telling the story of, you know, now that I have uh, links to Central Virginia and, you know, we got married here 11 years ago and I had not heard of this company until, do you want to hear this? This is not apocryphal. I was doing a 25-year crash of 87 anniversary story for Business Week, and the editors of Bloomberg were brought in, and they ran a screen on the Bloomberg terminal to see the best-performing stocks since that crash of 87, uh, you know, barely a year after you guys IPO'd. And yeah, the usual suspects, United Healthcare, Oracle, you know, Microsoft, this. And I think number six or number seven, all these editors start scratching their heads. They see MKL in Glen Allen, Virginia. Markle? Is that a biotech, Markle? And I looked at it in Glen Allen. They're like, isn't that Richmond? And I was like, what? What the heck is this? You read a little deeper. Jason Zweig of the Wall Street Journal does a piece on your CEO and chief investment officer. Tom Gaynor calls him the next uh, Warren Buffett. He's been called Baby Buffett. This company has been compared to Berkshire Hathaway, which is the you know, the valedictorian of American investment shops. I mean, Warren Buffett, you want to talk about value investing. Everybody prays at his temple. And yet you guys still seem to fly under the radar. You're valued at $16 billion. You're in the Fortune 500. You own all of these portfolio companies. Yes, you do interesting insurance risks such as what, weddings and tents and horses. But you have quite a cult following among even the Berkshire Hathawayites. Well, we've had a lot of good fortune. Um, and it's all been built based on a lot of the things that Sam Markell set in place uh, almost 90 years ago and the second generation of the Markell family built on. And fortunately, the third generation has had its fortune and good luck keeping that stream going. You know, some of these risks have become super esoteric and interesting. I'm, I'm fascinated by this. And I believe it's, it's your cousin, Tony, who's the head of the insurance, who was the insurance brains of, of Markell? Tony certainly ran all of our insurance operations, yes. I want to explain this. This is in Yahoo Finance. Markel's insurance segment offers general and professional liability, property, personal lines, marine and energy, specialty programs, and workers' comp insurance products. It also offers contract, commercial, and court bonds, coverage on automobiles or other vehicles held as collateral for loans, coverages for horse mortality, theft, infertility, Transit and specific perils, crime coverage, property and liability package coverage to small and medium-sized businesses, accident and health coverage, coverage for legal expenses, and short-term credit coverage for commercial risks. You know, the sad news of that is that whenever there's a catastrophe in the world, we usually participate. These are not traditional things. I'm looking at Berkshire, and Berkshire Hathaway owns Geico. And so it's an enormously thriving business with name recognition and everything and gets this deluge of premiums coming in, and it very wisely goes and invests that in value. And um, 
very few people like uh, Warren Buffett get to go and make an investment in something. And when the filing comes out and people find out, the stock pops. It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. Talk me into when this company made that three-point turn to become – I mean it was a wonderful specialty insurer in its own right. But not only master these esoteric risks but take the premiums and buy businesses. Well, it's two or three steps in that process. Uh, if you go back to the early days, again, we were primarily an agency, not an insurance company. In 1986, when we went public, about a third of our business was still in the agency segment, the brokerage segment of the insurance business. About a third of our revenues was in claims management and a third in insurance underwriting. Uh, it wasn't until 1990 that we decided to put all of our eggs in the underwriting basket and sort of walk away from the insurance brokerage and service businesses. And as an insurance underwriter, we were able to build assets, which we had the opportunity then to invest in um, a wide variety of investment opportunities and sort of copy or follow the Berkshire Hathaway track. Historically, most insurance companies and the management teams of most insurance companies are so focused on the underwriting side of the business that they really do ignore or don't pay as much attention to the investment side as we think they should. And part of what Berkshire does and what Markell has done, and there's some other insurance organizations focusing on it more today, but we treat with a great deal of respect the opportunity and the value of the investment side of the business as well. And so part of what sets Markell apart, part of why our success has been what it has, is we've had a, a very, very successful investment operation as part of our insurance operation. So we've, we treat it both offensively and defensively. So let me ask, is table stakes of an insurer, a massive insurer, if you look at an AIG, if you look at a Pacific Life, they do invest, but they're looking at matching maturities, they're looking at treasuries, they're looking at various risks. And do they go out and I haven't seen insurance companies actually buy and nurture companies. Yeah. They might buy publicly traded stocks. They might make investments in private equity or pre-IPO things or venture capital. But I see that Markel Ventures was launched in 2005. Uh, it says it deployed permanent capital investing approach to acquiring non-insurance companies. So there's Parkland Ventures, which is that a mobile home park? Company? Quite a few. Yes. Right. So Markel Eagle Partners, I see construction there, retail data, Diamond Healthcare, Partner MD, which is concierge healthcare, right? Correct. You get attention, round the clock treatment, preventative care. There's the famous uh, bakery investment that you guys made. Was it AMF Bakery? Correct. Investments. So these are very much non correlating with the insurance business. Absolutely. And it's part of the Markel philosophy of um, you know, finding the best place to invest money. Um, and our investment philosophy is, is, is not unlike the rest of our uh, business philosophy about focusing on long-term results, finding where we can get the highest return on capital, and investing in smart people and businesses that earn good returns on capital. Um, and doing that in the private sector is, is just as rewarding as, as buying public securities, along with um, the value of being able to invest in private securities we're able to have influence on sort of the reinvestment of capital, where in public securities you have very little input into how the business reinvests the earnings they make. Sure. And we also have influence on, you know, setting goals and objectives for the for the companies, and that's an important element to 
to success. Tell me how you discovered Tom Gaynor. We've had him on the show before. <laughs> he has this cult following. I mean, even if you guys go to the Berkshire Hathaway Confab in, in Omaha, he has his own group of people. I mean, Saurabh Madan followed him across the country from Google. People ask me about him. You see him quoted in Yahoo Finance. Uh, you know, very normal guy. Uh, so in, in 1986, when Markel was doing its initial public offering, Tom Gaynor was an analyst at Davenport & Company, a wonderful brokerage company here in Richmond. And he was assigned the task of uh, following Markel. And as a result of that, Tom and I got to know each other as he was paying attention to Markel. We actually retained Tom as a broker at Davenport to execute trades for us in our investment side of our business. Um, in fact, I had uh, Tom buy some of the first shares of Berkshire Hathaway that the company ever bought in those days. Tom and I got to know each other as, uh, in, in that relationship, and a few years later, uh, I invited Tom to join Markell as, as our investment manager. And um, I think in the early days, I might have given him a million or two million dollars to manage for Markell, and we were off to the races. Did you have to convince the board and the further management committee and the Markell family that this is not just going to be a niche part of the business, but we're going to be real bread and butter investors? We're really shaping ourselves in the mold of Berkshire Hathaway. After all, Berkshire Hathaway was a textile mill, correct? In <laughs> Massachusetts. Absolutely. It has nothing. I mean, now it's an insurer. It owns stakes in Kraft Heinz. It's a railroad company. It makes uh, extraordinary investments, what, in Goldman Sachs and other things. It's a financial empire. It's like a kind of a parallel Wall Street in the Midwest. Well, even in 1986, Berkshire was on that track. And and Warren Buffett and, and Charlie Munger, his partner, you know, were talking about uh, intrinsic business value and a lot of issues related to focusing on long-term investing and the core philosophies of the company, which has made it so successful and many of which we've tried to emulate. And so the whole concept of long-term investing and value investing is deeply embedded in, in the Berkshire culture. You know, and even back in those days, it was. What's incredible to me is if you want a timestamp to 1997, you did move trading of Markel to the New York Stock Exchange from the NASDAQ where you had started a decade prior to that. Uh, the company's market capitalization at this point was $900 million. Again, as of today, it's at $16 billion. So this gainer strategy, clearly, you know, we've called it capital gainer of investing in portfolio companies. Uh, what convinced you that he had an eye for that kind of talent outside of the table stakes of investing in an S&P 500 fund. I mean, it takes a very special person out there to realize we can buy companies, stick with existing management, give them growth capital and give them leeway, but also have a discipline and standards and ultimately make this accretive to a, a company as massive as the insurer that was Markel. Well, I think, um, you know, and Tom uses these words that um, you sort of crawl, then you walk and then you run. Uh, and so it's a process. And it's, um, you know, in the first days that, that Tom was part of the Markel investment team, you know, we were just managing a very, very modest portfolio. And it's really a question of, of, of establishing the framework and building um, the philosophy and defining the way we think about investments and then build it over time. And nothing happens quickly. And so, you know, it was quite a process to go from the portfolio we managed in the early 90s to the company today. And a lot of what we do today is because, you know, we had 20 years worth of prior success. In the very, very early days, this um, was more than a little resistance, you know, from the rating agencies and from, from others about uh, investing in common stocks. The way earnings gets reported, 
dividends and, and capital gains returns you make from common stocks are not valued in the market the same as interest income. You know, the difference of where the geography it shows up on your P&L and your balance sheet makes a big difference in the way analysts think of your company. And so part of the mindset of Berkshire Hathaway, part of the mindset of Markell that makes us successful is we're focused more on building wealth and building the value of the business as opposed to just focusing on the P&L. You know, a lot of companies would rather earn a 5% coupon every year than earn a 10% total return by investing in equities. Mm. And even today, you could talk to an insurance exec and say, would you rather clip this 5% coupon every year or would you live with the volatility of a total return of 10% over? As the price of admission to a total return of 10%. And, and a lot of people are not willing to suffer the down year um, when, and it's got to happen sooner or later. And we know that the long-term returns, if you take Ibbotson data going back to the 1920s prior to the founding of this company, was the S&P 500 with dividends reinvested. It's a 9.2% a year return. The rule of 72 tells us that your money actually doubles every 10 years when it compounds at 7.2%. So 10% is above and beyond that. And compare it today where your fixed income investment, if you're being conservative, you're, you're lucky to get 2%. That's right. And so that philosophy is really important, and it, it's, it's based upon, you know, focusing on balance sheet as well as income statement. It's a based upon, you know, the idea of making a distinction between intrinsic value and what might be the stock market price on any single day, the difference between what, what's good for the long term, the next 10 or 20 years, versus what might be rewarding for the next quarter. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You are listening to Steve Markell, Vice Chairman and Director at uh, Markell Corporation, the specialty insurer and value investment shop with his name on it, started by his grandpa in 1930. He started as an assistant treasurer at Markell in 1975. The company had its initial public offering in 1986. It was worth $15 million. Today, in 2019, it's worth $16 billion, and it's based right here in suburban Richmond. I do have a question. When we look at the portfolio companies together, Today And I'm thinking, wow, Sam Markell, rest in peace. Would you ever have imagined that Markell, for starters, would have a Markell Bakery Group, including AMF Bakery, Reading Bakery Systems, and Trump Bakery Equipment Company? You bought a luxury handbag company in Brahmin. You have Concierge Medical Care. You CapTech, which is a consultancy. I, I don't understand it. I look at Berkshire Hathaway and he has C's candies, right? As a kind of a you know, dairy queen, all these things. Like what what makes you guys so extraordinary that you could find these opportunities that and by the way, there's no shortage of money sloshing around right now, whether it's private equity or mutual funds or index fund shops, to go out and, and snap up these things and bid them up before you can get there. Well, it's a challenge and and uh, we need to find sellers who are interested in being part of the Markel family. We do have a different philosophy when we're buying businesses than many. So unlike a, an industry consolidator, we can offer an existing management team the opportunity to continue without interference. We don't pretend to know anything about some of these businesses. And so when we buy a business, our goal is to leave the existing management team largely intact Unlike most buyout shops, we do not leverage these businesses. A lot of buyers will put a lot of debt on top of the business fully with the intent to resell them in three or five or seven years. That puts the management team on a track to have to repay debt and to have to earn enough to allow the buyer to make a quick profit and flip it in 
five or seven years. And if you take the siren call of Wall Street and take an initial public offering or even a bond offering, you are at the behest of, well, you know, quarterly filings. You have to take analyst calls. You have to manage for the quarter. And so this is kind of the best of both worlds. You have a publicly traded, very liquid company that keeps the management team in place. Isn't necessarily putting the quarterly gun to its head, though there are standards. Yeah. No, and the standards are just to, to do the best you can continue to earn higher returns on equity. We try to buy businesses that, that have a history of, of being profitable. And whether the business reinvests its capital or distributes it back to Markel is really a function of whether the business has opportunities to grow. And so we're happy to collect the cash flow if that's the best answer for the business. And likewise, we're enthusiastic about allowing the business to reinvest it if they're legitimate and profitable opportunities to reinvest it. Well, walk me through the special sauce in this, and I'll say the special grain at this point. AMF Bakery Systems was purchased in 2000? About, yeah. About 2000. What, was somebody driving down the 195, the downtown <laughs> express line? is like, we got to get that, right? I know AMF is the bowling pin company and everything. Was this an offshoot from that? Why is the, you know, I guess, was it the largest bakery company in history or bakery equipment company? Why was that intrinsically appealing? Well, it was a result of two or three key issues. One, as a company, we knew the management team uh, and we had a relationship with the existing shareholders. And so we were someone that was a natural place to have an initial conversation. And the management team did not want to get on the treadmill of going through four more, you know, leverage buyouts. They'd played that game before. So AMF had all this LBO trouble, debt trouble. I remember certain bonds of the AMF bowling stuff was in restructuring. It kind of got messy and hairy. Yeah, I'm not sure that the the, the bakery business or the or bakery equipment business was was as much tied into that. But was bakery um, equipment fundamentally appealing to you? Like, was there no. a tell internally that we know that Panera, for example, is going to explode or there's no, going to no, be no, a no. pizza? I mean, it's a an industrial cyclical business and. Um, what, what's appealing uh, was that it was available, had uh, high-quality people involved, and you know we could acquire it at a fair price, and we believed that it would be a, a solid business going forward. Did they come to you? Uh, yes. Uh, well, yeah, we knew the management team, and so they, uh, they did show up. Um, I am also fascinated by this other sister company here, which uh, has done very well for you and obviously spun out of the ghost of Circuit City is CarMax. Right, it's a stone's throw from where you guys are based. Very few people realize that this was developed for nearly a year in 1991, back when Circuit City, that the now defunct Circuit City, was in its heyday, uh, for honest Rick's used cars. There was then CEO Richard Sharp. You've been a very successful holder of this company, and it's not like you felt the need to go and buy the entire thing. You've owned a very small, you know, minority stake in it, but it has moved the needle for you. Yeah, it's been a big investment for Markel. Again, it's um, we just bought the publicly traded shares, and uh, we owned it back when Circuit City started it and, and created a subclass of stock and then ultimately spun it off. We just had a lot of confidence in their business model and uh, stuck with it over a long period of time. It's a great example of one of our philosophies in investing is the sort of dollar-cost average. And so um, we've acquired the CarMax shares in the earliest days, and um, we continue to buy shares when the stock is weak. Um, and it's just, a, it's, it's just a, a, a wonderful thing to be able to enjoy the capital appreciation of a common stock like, like CarMax. And you know, one of the key things it's, um, it sort of demonstrates is by not realizing the gain, we've not had to pay 
federal income taxes on capital gains. And so the, the deferred tax liability by not selling, you know, when you buy something and hold it forever, um, you're, you're not paying the annual tax bill mm. on the growth. And people don't understand the value and the power of, of not having to pay taxes on your growth of value. Um, but, you know, today I'm sure the, the value of uh, our CarMax shares, you know, is a multiple of what our cost is. Isn't it interesting that Berkshire Hathaway, I think, was it three, four years ago, went out and bought, um, it's now called Berkshire Hathaway Automotive? Was it the second biggest used car dealership in the country? Yeah, that, I'm, I'm, isn't I, it interesting? I and then the people were, people, I, I, um, if you see through MPP company, Berkshire half off affiliate dealerships are offered to autos, retail customers, a unique industry leading portfolio. I always thought that was a play for kind of Geico to bolt into it. You guys yeah. don't insure cars per se, do you? No, no, no. Well, personal lines is sort of, well, I say we don't insure cars and then I should stop. Um, we're partners with Haggerty and one of the largest insurers of antique automobiles in the country. And so we do have a specialty in, uh, in the automobile business, but we, we focus on, on antique cars. Um, we do some motorcycle insurance as well. But generally speaking, we're not a, a personal lines insurer for, for auto or homeowners. This was the headline, actually. It was from October 2014, five years ago. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway agreed to buy Van Tile Group, the largest privately owned U.S. auto dealership group. The business with 75 dealerships will be renamed Berkshire Hathaway Automotive and will continue to be run by Larry Van Tile, which begs the question to me. I don't know if this gets any into any Reg FD issues or whatnot. I have to imagine that uh, um, Warren Buffett or one of his deputies and even this guy you know, in, in Charlottesville must have made an overture some, at some point to kind of nibble on the ear of, of Markel. It must be a complimentary business. You guys don't compete on underwriting risks. Well, we do a little bit. Um, Berkshire Hathaway has a very large specialty underwriting business um, through Genry and, and, and some of the businesses that Jeet runs. They do a lot of reinsurance business. Um, we've recently got more involved in this uh, securitization of insurance products, um, and that's an area where we would compete against Berkshire Hathaway. Um, but um, we, we try not to compete too much, and if, if uh, they're generally not too aggressive on price, and so they would be smart competition as a But it's a bit of a mutual admiration society. You've gone to the, you've gone to the Berkshire Confab in Omaha, which is like year you know, after the year after pilgrimage year. for value investors. And now your tent happens to be an event unto itself. People like to go and see Tom Gaynor and, and his coterie and you. It's growing. And uh, uh, the old saying is, if you build it, they will come. We're trying to build it. So imagine he puts his arm around you and walks you, was it, to Gorat's Steakhouse and says, you, you know what, Tom, we're, we're, we're getting up to our age and everything. I, 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 I like to just go through the drive through at McDonald's. G- give me a number. Give me a price. Take you guys out. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he's that interested. No comment. <laughs> uh, I do want to uh, get at some of the broader issues that we're talking about. You and I, when we get together at times to talk about investing in the markets, this is the longest period I can remember of risk on. Right, you talk about uh, near record level markets again. A bizarre um, confluence of headlines. We'll hit it on the nail again and again and again and again. Near, you know, fifty year low unemployment at the headline level. Uh, markets near an all time high. Real estate, which you have more than one hand in, uh, really recapitalized. Wall Street has been recapitalized. Two thousand eight, two thousand nine is a distant memory, and yet we have the Fed at accommodative interest rates. What's going on? I don't understand it. I really don't. Um, I've been expecting interest rates to go up for many, many years, and obviously I've been 
Um, I, I, my my expectation has not been realized. The interest rates are as low as they've ever been, and I don't know what is it. How, what percent of the interest rate world is at negative interest rates today? Which yeah, you look at Scandinavia, you look at Europe, you look at recapitalize Europe, which is now trading at kind of German level stuff. So, Greek bonds that nobody would touch, right? So it's it's just hard to understand. Um, and the federal debt, you know, who would have thought that we could continue to to, to run the the federal government at the deficits we are today? And so. Where are the bond vigilantes, the people who are supposed to punish us for this? I mean, you knew about this in your first five, six years of work at Markel. Take us back to the years of Volcker yeah. and interest rates going up in the teens and kind of breaking the back of inflation. That has been nowhere to be found. Absolutely. And for insurance companies, um, uh, because we have such large insurance or investment portfolios and most investment portfolios are committed to fixed income securities to match the liabilities that we have, um, it really is punishing to have these very, very low interest rates. Um, you know, in the in the early '80s, when Markel went public, um, you know, you could pretty much count on buying a, a U.S. government bond, uh, five-year, ten-year bond for seven and a half percent coupon, uh, that would earn, you know, five um, percent after tax. You know, if you had leverage in your insurance portfolio at four to one, you could earn a twenty percent return on capital with. With no underwriting profits. I don't think there's any bond and, trader today on Wall Street that has any institutional memory of that. Yeah. Right? You're a 20-something, 30-something person. Insurance is not – inflation has not been in the conversation. When did we last have true inflation? I mean it's, you had the creep yeah. up in 94 when the Fed came in and hiked rates and there were some banks that were jeopardized. But you know, we've – and by the way, we are nowhere near uh, the interest rate level that we were before the financial crisis. Mm -hmm. I believe it was five and a quarter percent and all things are relative and it's supposed to be – uh, a function of uh, consumer price inflation, and the Fed is very Catholic in terms of full employment versus beating down inflation. But uh, this has been an extraordinary century in terms of, of interest rates. Yeah. Well, in those days, inflation was a problem. And for insurance companies, if you underestimate the cost of your claims, and if inflation gets into your accounting for claims, and you pay a claim two years from now, and it ends up costing you 10% more because of inflation. Um, that's a real disastrous event for an insurance company. So uh, clearly inflation is an important element and the fact that it's very low today uh, benefits insurance companies um, and certainly offsets part of that interest rate problem. Um, but I'm equally um, um, befuddled about what inflation numbers really are. Um, you know, a, a, a color TV today might cost uh, um, the same as we paid for a color TV 20 years ago. But uh, in terms of an inflation index, because it's got 5,000 more pixels and it's twice as large, um, you know, the uh, accounting for, you know, is it, it – it's really cheaper today to buy a TV set than it's ever been. Ever been. And the but same we spend, with, a, with apparel or – but we have 10 times – I mean, I have – I spend twice as much on TV sets today than I did 25 years ago. Not, yeah. not me. I could walk into a Target or Walmart. No, no, They're I'm giving away TVs now. But how many do you have in your house? That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> They're everywhere. You know, and, and you're watching TV on your computer screen. What do you think about when you see the Big Mac Index and The Economist in terms of purchasing price parity globally? But if I – there are lots of places that will still offer a dollar Whopper or Big Mac to take it to the very yeah. understandable level for my parents. Yeah. And that's something that was similarly offered in 1988. Yeah. So it's hard to really understand. Um, you know, your telephone, your communications bill is – you know, 100 times more than it was 30 years ago. 
But you're communicating a gazillion why do times we back, more Why deaths. do we back out food and fuel? I'm really curious yeah. about that. The band for oil and energy, as you used to know, would be you. I would be called on the or CNN. education. Education. I'd be called on the CNN or CNBC whenever oil broke twenty dollars a barrel, yeah. and then the aughts, you know, the two thousands with China really coming online. The new twenty dollars was kind of closer to sixty dollars a barrel, right. and we even visited uh, mid triple digits, like one hundred and forty dollars a barrel. How is that backed out? How is yeah. food backed out? How is it that we know we go to the grocery store. We just had a huge Publix open up next to mm. us, which charges a pretty penny for a sandwich, but that's not supposed to count in terms of inflation accounting. Yeah. It's amazing. It's, I mean, you buy a car today and you'll pay you know, 20% more than you paid for a car 10 years ago. But because there's so many gizmos in that car on an inflation-adjusted basis, You've paid half as much as you paid for your prior car. It seems like it's really larded up with asterisks. I think if you ask people out there in terms of healthcare costs, education costs, right? Even yeah. people who in-state tuition, prepaid, uh, honor system and everything, uh, it, it seems like and, – and, and wages have not kept up with yeah. this. I wonder if the economic student in you worries yeah. about that. Well, and on the other side, if you look at it positively, we're living better today um, as, and, as we've ever lived as a, as a society. And sure. So, we all have the benefits of, 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 of more and plenty than, um, than any generation before us has had. So uh, in spite of that, um, things are better. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are pleased to be joined in studio here in downtown Richmond by Steve Markell, vice chairman and director of the specialty insurer Markell, uh, founded by his grandfather, and value investing shop. Uh, you started there, was it 44 years ago? And Markell turns 90 in 2020. Um, I do have a question about another local giant, which was a, a, a masterful um, allocator of capital and a profit machine in the 20th century, Altria. We've spoken about it, based here in, in Richmond, in Henrico. And it's really been in the news lately uh, because of its investment in Juul. It made its biggest investment ever in this kind of breakthrough vaping company at quite a premium last December. And now this has kind of turned uh, a bit toxic for them because here you have a uh, uh, the biggest cigarette maker in the country, parent of Marlboro, a huge, like, uh, if you look at the returns over the 20th century of what this was, the former Philip Morris, unbelievable, like $1 invested in this company and all the dividends and split outs. And you talk about, uh, what was it, Miller Brewing and, and Kraft and back and forth. Uh, but suddenly, uh, uh, juuling is very dangerous. And at the same time, it's perceived, vaping is perceived as dangerous. The CDC is warning people we don't know about the lung effects, is it the, the bootleg jeweling? Is it the cartridges with THC? But guilt by association, and, and meanwhile, Altria came in and put one of its veteran executives in as the CEO of, of Juul. So they pretty much, even though they own a third of it, they kind of own it right now at the same time that their business, their, their core cigarette business is declining faster than expected. How do you look at a company kind of as, as problematic from a strategic perspective as Altria? Well... I'm not an expert in Altria, and um, I, 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 we're, we're not investors in the stock, um, and I personally wouldn't be excited about becoming an investor in the stock. I was a, a former cigarette smoker, and um, I'm glad to say that it was a former cigarette smoker. What did you smoke um, until? Uh, until I had triple bypass heart surgery in ni 1991. Um so I have a, um, a, a respectable fear of um, the outcomes of, of being a cigarette smoker. The idea that you suck something else into your lungs and not really know what it is 
um, creates enough um, concern on my part that I, I just don't quite understand it. It's hard to know what would be healthy um, and what's not healthy other than clean air um, to put in your lungs. So. But how do they reinvent? How, if at all, can they self-disrupt? You're still measured as this company on the cash flows of, and they have had pricing power with Marlboro and their other things. Yeah. And Jewel looked like a fortuitous investment because until recently, this was growing like a weed. Yeah. You'd see people you know, go to Manhattan sucking on what looks like a USB uh, thumb drive, and it said it's changed their lives. Uh, it's taken them off the multi-pack-a-week habit. And you wonder, you know, I asked... Uh, I, I asked um, someone at Davenport who we've had on the show is Mike Beal, who used to work yeah. with Tom Gaynor, who has had many clients at Altria, has been asked about the disruption over the years. He says it's not an easy thing, but at some point you would think that they would remerge with Philip Morris International and they would take this jewel movement internationally. Right. And then that would be the least disruptive self-disruption. There are very few people I can get to wonk out with. On this, and the you know, <laughs> next time I see Tom Gaynor, I'm certainly going to ask him, "How do they do it?" There's so much at stake. The company is still worth ninety billion dollars. Um, it, it's still followed. It's still an S and P five hundred, and I think it's a Dow component. How can this be done? Everything else has been disrupted by digital. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it's hard to know the right answer. Um, they could have um, put more money in the wine business. I guess would have been one option, um, or or do um, a Markel. Uh, play and other uh, private equity businesses outside of the, the tobacco realm. Um, I don't know what the sales and the, um, you know, the snuff products have been, but I, I get the impression that's a, a pretty solid business for them as well. Um, but it's a challenge to have a, uh, a business like, um, like tobacco where um, you're making a lot of money, but it's, it's, it's not growing and you don't really can't afford to let it grow. Does, does Markel not invest in a company like this, another local giant, because for, for ethical reasons or for it's just not an appealing? Uh, it's, it probably falls in the category of too hard to figure out. Um, and so, um, you know, there are hundreds of opportunities of things to invest in. And if one just seems too tough uh, or you don't have a strong opinion about it, uh, it's not necessary to, to make a decision every time. Um, you know, one of them, um, of, of, of Buffett's comments is, uh, you know, you don't, and in the investment world, there's no, no, nothing about taking a thousand balls or you don't, you know, you don't have to strike, don't swing at every pitch. You can wait until you see the fat pitch and you can wait forever until you see the fat pitch. You don't, you know, the ones you don't swing at don't count against you. Mm. Um, and so wait till you, something falls in your circle of competence, something you feel confident that you understand. Um, Such as bakeries or, or exactly. potted plant nursery company out of Miami with then a Cuban so family in it. Then so or a handbag company. That's the hardest thing. It's it's really hard to ape what you guys are doing. If you try to set up a an artificial intelligence Tom Gaynor, you don't know he's going to go meet this Cuban yeah. family that owns the largest you know <laughs> office plant business and nursery business in the country or AMF bakery or, or Brahmin bags. Where did yeah. that come out of? Exactly. The but, handbag business. But it's about you can look at their track record. It's, it's, it's not all that complicated to understand that, you know, they create a brand or a business to respond to a need. Uh, if they've been doing it, doing it right for a long period of time, um, it's, it's likely that that will continue. Um, you know, one of Tom's comments is uh, if you look at a, um, uh, a bottle of Johnny Walker, I think it says on it since um, 1837, or I don't know what the date is, but, you know, do you think they could really screw it up next year? That's 
you know, it's not likely. Mm. Um, and so if you find something that's, that's solid and, and understandable and consistent and run by talented people that are uh, honest and trustworthy and uh, you can get it at a fair price and you can make a reasonable estimate of what the economic value is, why not? Steve Markell, again, 1975 looms so large in your history, and that's when you started as a lowly assistant treasurer in 1975. You told me offline that you would get promoted when you ran out of business cards for a certain title, right? Yeah, the second generation of the Markell family, uh, my um, three uncles and dad um, were were reasonably frugal. And um, I'll never forget that when I was uh, my first promotion, um, the minutes of the promotion said that um, the effective date of my promotion from assistant treasurer to treasurer would be uh, when I ran out of business cards. And so... uh, (laughs) And when did that... So before I get into that, actually, 1975 is also when uh, Jack Bogle, the late Jack Bogle, um, who founded the Index Fund at uh, Vanguard in 1975, I mean, which was looked at as a curiosity then. Could you ever have imagined that less than 50 years later... Vanguard would be toting about $6 trillion in assets, arguably the biggest investing beneficiary of the financial crisis, is that more and more people said, instead of beating the markets, just be the market. Exactly. Just take mercifully low costs. Even you know, y'all's hero, Warren Buffett, says that it's, it's better than nine out of 10 people can do is just invest in the index fund. Yeah, and that's a challenge. Um, I remember my early days um, when I was traveling around talking to analysts and uh, promoting and talking to people about investing in Markel, a lot of times people would say, you know, if the market's going up, your stock is going to go up. Um, if the insurance industry is doing well and insurance stocks are going up, your stock will go up. You know, if the reverse is true, you know, your stock is going down. If the industry is going down or the, the market's going down. And um, what you add in the short term is almost nothing to the value of the stock. Um and so, you know, on a daily basis, our stock price is so driven by index funds and other mm. big purchases of stock. Um, now, the truth is, is in the long term, uh, what a management team does with a company makes all the difference in the world. And so, again, it's a function of whether you've got a, a short-term view of things or a long-term view of things. Um, and um, uh, in the long term, if you outperform, you will be rewarded. Um, but it, you need to be patient and you need to disengage from sort of the daily view of what's happening in the marketplace. Does it blow your mind that um, the commission just silently died? I mean, you talk about commissions being deregulated, right? Commissions, uh, th- one of the first seismic events was in the mid-1970s and Wall Street's like, how do we survive that? And Chuck Schwab, you know, rode that trend and bringing, you know, discount commissions and and discount brokerage into Main Street in America. But now we're talking about Vanguard and Schwab and E-Trade and Ameritrade and all them saying, don't pay us commissions. There's money Mm -hmm. elsewhere. I mean, very few people have commented on this recently, Mm -hmm. that 2019 will go down on the record as kind of when one of the bread and butter revenue makers of Wall Street for time immemorial just died. It's interesting. Um, You know, one of the things that that Markell did to sort of copy um, our friends at Berkshire was to not split the stock. We had one one small split shortly after we went public, but uh, basically we've decided that it, it doesn't make sense to, to do stock splits. And um, that's getting to be more mainstream today, but for, for many, many years, we were criticized uh, that we allowed our stock price uh, to increase. Um, 
and there are a lot of smart reasons for doing so, but um, one of the sort of silly reasons uh, was that our fees on the New York Stock Exchange were based upon how many shares we had outstanding. Mm. And so by splitting the stock and doubling the shares outstanding, we'd simply double the fees we had to pay the New York Stock Exchange to be a member. Um, or that um, the cost to buy or sell a stock, a share of stock, you know, was always based upon um, the number of shares, not the price per share. And so in the old days, if a brokerage firm was getting five or 10 cents a share uh, when they traded stock or 20 or 30 cents in the old days, um, you know, it was very expensive if you had a low price stock. Mm. Uh, and by letting the stock price go up, it really reduced that cost. Steve, in the 15 minutes or so less, I want to get into some of your philanthropic efforts, which have been kind of many in, in the RVA area over the past five years. I think about the food desert uh, in the Eastern Churchill area, which is, you know, you, you guys have partnered with uh, Sergeant Reynolds uh, Culinary School, J. Sarge Reynolds Culinary School. I think about the ICA, the Institute for Contemporary Arts at VCU at the corner of Belvedere and Broad, which is just a gorgeous building with a great auditorium. Um, how... How, what's your philosophy? You and Kathy, actually, I believe she was Christmas mom exactly. uh, a few years ago. You and Kathy Markell, how did you decide to get involved in these things? You clearly had a, you know, come to Jesus, come to Moses moment with your own health and uh, triple bypass, and you discovered the importance of fresh foods and, and cleaner eating and realized that a whole swath of Richmond sees nothing like that. Well, we've been, um, uh, my wife and I, Kathy and I, have been lucky to be engaged in the community for um, forever, ever since we um, we got involved and in, in we've we've been involved in different parts of the community and uh, community service has been something that's um, sort of was bred into me growing up. My dad was always involved in the community and Richmond's a great place and um, we we just feel a, an obligation to give back to the communities because we've been um, benefited from it so much um, and so it's just been part of our DNA to get involved and to. We talked, we talked offline about how difficult it was to get the grocery business to come in and build a grocery, a robust grocery in a food desert. The economics of that business are being disrupted, as we read every day, by uh, Amazon Whole Foods. <laughs> and unfortunately, I'm learning more about every day. Every day, right? <laughs> you want to mitigate the losses on a business like this, but it's very hard. If you look at the wars going on between Kroger and Amazon and Walmart at the low end and people treating this as a kind of a loss leader – and you trying to have something stand on its own two feet in a place where, you know, we spoke with people there. There are there are people up, you know, in Creighton Gilpin Court who've never seen a real avocado exactly in person. Yeah, I've never really seen produce. You might have uh, small Seven Elevens or liquor stores or divey places that sell you a pint of milk for you know four dollars. Well, the need for uh, fresh food and vegetables in, in Churchill is uh, a very material need, and uh, Kathy and I were happy to be able to, to get involved. We've um, developed the market at 25th, and um, it's, a, it's really a community asset. It's um, about bringing good quality food to the neighborhood. Uh, it's also about bringing jobs to the neighborhood, um, and it's also about creating a, a, a place and a space uh, where all segments of the community, the um, the the poorest from the the projects to the richest from um, from the sort of the area of Churchill that's that's being redeveloped, uh, to come together and hopefully um, uh, have a place where people can interact and 
and meet everybody's needs. And so the, the market at 25th is about trying to build a community in Churchill and make the overall neighborhood um, a healthy neighborhood, um, which is sort of something that it's lacked. And when does the culinary school come online? Uh, culinary school building should be finished sort of April of next year. And the school will open shortly thereafter. And I understand there's like a kitchen stadium type food network type <laughs> place where you can bring in out of town chefs and they yeah. can. The, the new culinary school is branded the kitchens at Reynolds, uh, has four very large state of the art uh, culinary kitchens. Uh, one of them is uh, a performance kitchen, uh, which is a, a tiered classroom that will have 75 seats uh, with all of the electronic technology to have TV cameras focused on what the chef is preparing so that you can see on widescreen TVs uh, from the audience what's happening. And it'll be not only a space of learning for the students, but a, a space that will be open to the community to, to bring in guest chefs and have other cooking events. Mm. As you know, RVA Dine, I mean, the dining scene in this town has been just unbelievable since I moved here in 2012. But one of the constant complaints in a period of full employment right now is that we cannot find or hang on to sous chefs, uh, front of kitchen people, back of kitchen people. There's a real paucity of people, and it's problematic. Um, people on the business end are coming in from the front office and working the cash registers <laughs> and, the, and the griddle and whatnot. And so they've been begging uh, for some sort of mechanism for more workers to come in and feel invested in it, that it's not just the transactional thing. I'm paying a person $9 an hour. They're coming in. If they get paid $10 an hour, suddenly they don't show up by next Monday. You're trying to seed like a true culture of, of ownership and a professional farm system into the rest of Virginia. Yeah, absolutely. The Kitchens at Reynolds is, is really an important entry point for the Reynolds, or the Reynolds Community College uh, to bring people into the community college system. Um, but there are well over 9,000 culinary jobs in the city of Richmond. Uh, the culinary school will be able to train 750, 800 uh, students a year to, to feed that industry and help it grow. Um, it's, it's not only uh, an entry point for, for first jobs and the ability to work and get a job, which is very, very important, uh, but also uh, to allow those that want to excel in that career and move from from the bottom of the ladder to the top of the ladder uh, to move along the way. And so um, it's, it serves both as an entry point into getting a career in, in the culinary world, but also uh, giving people a door into Reynolds Community College broadly or to develop their expertise as a culinary chef and become one of the best. Steve, what do these uh, single moms or single dads do about childcare? Um, you know, it's problematic if you have a young child and the schooling system there is beyond decrepit. We've had Jason Cameras on the show before. You can't take for granted that your young child's needs are being cared for over there to go and, and, and go headlong into a culinary education. Well, child care is a problem, you know, regardless of what you want to do. Um, there are, you know, a number of agencies uh, that do provide some support, um, but but it's an area where clearly – uh, there's a much, much greater need and, um, you know, in the long term, finding better solutions for that is, is something we need to do. Um, and that's true, you know, for both rich and poor people. That's true. Is having high quality child care. More importantly is um, sort of addressing the real educational needs of, of kids, um, which is um, I think we're, we're learning more about every day. 
And I do want to get your thoughts on this uh, Navy Hill mega construction project uh, just north of downtown Richmond, which has become a lightning rod of controversy. You are friends and professional acquaintances with Tom Farrell, the CEO of Dominion, who's taken the lead on this kind of TIF improvement district. The the linchpin is the old rusted Coliseum, this <laughs> this other tin can right. in addition to the Markel building, the old Markel mm-hmm. building in Willow Lawn. Um, it's getting so much pushback. I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I understand that you are part of the consortium. And then what happens if nothing is built there, if it's just left yeah. alone? Well, as a, a, a long-term resident of Richmond, um, you know, I think it's uh, important um, to, to make this project happen and for it to be successful. Um, it's, it's sad that, that Richmond no longer has a first-class coliseum or arena you know, to support entertainment and shows coming to Richmond. You know, the people are going to Charlottesville or down to Virginia Beach to see a concert just doesn't seem to make sense that that Richmond can no longer have, you know, a basketball tournament or or bring in even something like Holiday on Ice or whatever other, the, the circus to Richmond because we no longer have, you know, a viable coliseum or arena. Um, and it just it just feels like, um, you know, Richmond ought to have an arena. Um, but couldn't the animal spirits of private property development alone just target the arena thing? Must you have a whole district, parts of it end up looking like, you know, Sherlington and Arlington and Northern Virginia? Must you have this complicated swath of the city cut out in its own tax district with uh, revenue earmark? Can't you just, I mean, I'm, I'm asking you not as a real estate investor, can't you just look at the opportunities like, all right, we'll tear down this tin can and build something great? Yeah, I think that, I mean, you could try to do that, but the subsidy that would require to, to make the arena self-sustaining, you know, nobody would want to pay for it. And so um, what is true is that if we build an arena, that people will also want restaurants around the arena. They'll also want apartments in that neighborhood um, and by the way, we currently have a convention center that lacks hotel rooms, and a hotel will support not only our existing convention center, but it will also support the new Coliseum. When people come to town to see the show, they'll have a place to stay. Um, and so it's the combination of the hotel and the apartments and the retail center and the restaurant that work together. It's not unlike my little project in Churchill a grocery store sitting by itself is less likely to be successful than if we build critical mass around it and put a culinary school directly next to it and add a few apartments on top of it. And it starts to get investment in that neighborhood. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's absolutely possible that the city could build a coliseum, but the taxpayers would then be asked, you know, to subsidize it in a, in a way that probably people would not want to. Uh, but to subsidize the Coliseum with apartments and more housing and more jobs is very rational. You know, I've only been in this city for seven years, but you talk to people and they seem to bunch things like the 2015 bike race or the canal walk redevelopment thing or, um, you know, Redskins training facility. All these were supposed to be panaceas for uh, uh, development, uh, excitement, tax revenue, maybe money that could could end up in the coffers of the schools that's so desperately needed. Why is there such pronounced opposition to this among younger people, among millennials? Yeah. I, it doesn't make sense to me. Um, I think it's fear. Uh, it maybe it's lack of understanding. Um, you know, I think um, there any criticisms that um, that that Tom Farrell or that 
or that the other principles behind it are, are, are truly greedy, you know, money suckers trying to take advantage of people, I think it's just totally misfounded. Um, I'm, I feel very, very confident that the, um, that the, the motivation is, is 100% civic. Um, you know, it should make money if it's, if it's successful. And the investors and, you know, the project has not yet raised all the money it needs to make it work. And it won't raise the money if it doesn't get the green light. Uh, but the investors, whoever they are, will expect to make a return. And, in fact, citizens of Richmond, you know, have been and will be invited to participate in that investment. And so it's not like anybody's being excluded. Um, you know, the, the option would be to leave the land as it is. Or the option would be to, to sort of piecemeal it and let, you know, let the Coliseum be torn down and fall away and let somebody buy one piece of land and try to develop one piece of buildings. You know, VCU and the VCU health systems will continue to grow. Uh, and there'll be, you know, it'll just take 20 years instead of five years. Or but maybe then, it'll then take 50 years. We had Michael Paul Williams years. on the show and he said, look at what happened in Scott's edition. That seemed to have happened in a vacuum. Don't you wish you could go back in time 10 years and buy up all of Scott's edition? <laughs> Did we even refer to Scott's edition as anything back yeah. then? Well, you know, and it's it, it has, but it's been a long time and it's, you know, people are making money off of it. Um, you know, would, would that area become another Scott's edition? Maybe someday. And maybe with the Coliseum, it could. Uh, maybe with the Coliseum, it could as well and just take another 50 years. Do we want another Scott's edition in the center of downtown Richmond? <laughs> I mean, maybe we do. Um, I mean, I think the real question that people aren't asking is should Richmond have a Coliseum? Do we want to have a venue, you know, that'll seat that many people to have major events come to Richmond, Virginia? And if the answer to that's no, if really we do not want to replace the Coliseum, we're happy to say the city of Richmond, Virginia does not need a large, you know, facility like a Coliseum. Well, I'm glad, uh, you know, by way of by way of conclusion, I'm glad that the old Markel rusted tick can on Willow Lawn Drive. <laughs> we didn't even get into that, but your uh, iconic headquarters building on Willow Lawn Drive and Broad Street is the other uh, famous tin can, and it's not going to be knocked down anytime soon. And I think it pays testimony to the fact that you guys next year are going to be celebrating your 90th anniversary. Steve Markel, Vice Chairman and Director of Markel Corporation. Thank you so much, sir. You're always welcome on this show. Thank you, Robin. It's been a lot of fun. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. This show airs on NPR member station VPM News and on iTunes at linkfulldradio.com. Last call, November 10th at Richmond's National Theater. Hear the stories, then hear the music. Not a surf on full disclosure. How this great band survived a quarter century of disruption in the music industry. You're going to get an interview and a full concert and a documentary taping to boot. Tickets at vpm.org events and at the National's box office. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 